Our US Open coverage is sponsored by AG1. AG1 is the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. And as part of our US Open coverage, Joel, Kim and I have taken a little AG1 challenge of our own. And we've been updating you on our AG1 journey and how it's improving our health and wellness. Well, now we've come to the end of our first two weeks trying AG1. Have you noticed a change? Do you know what? I have actually. I've, of course, been recording, editing, going late night with the time zone in New York City. It does not compute with my body. So actually having AG1 has enabled me to just kind of keep focused and keep my energy levels up. Yeah, I'm definitely going to keep it up. I think it's become such a good part of my morning routine. It helps me hydrate first thing. And I think all the, the B vitamins, especially, have really kept me going throughout the like busy days that I'm having uh, um, in the office and, and also podcasting uh, in the evening as well. Yeah, I think it's supporting my immune system. I've been flying a lot and normally I get kind of those post-flight coughs and colds, but I haven't had any of that since I started taking AG1. If a comprehensive solution for your supplement routine is what you're looking for, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash tennisweekly. That's drinkag1.com slash Tennis Weekly. Check it out. When you support our partners, you support our podcast. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel, Kim and Chris. On today's US Open Finals catch-up, sponsored by AG1. Novak Djokovic captures his record 24th singles slam. Goff secures her first slam at 19. And we gear up for the Davis Cup Finals in Manchester. Kim, Chris, today is the 11th of September and we are here to catch up on the finals of the US Open at Tennis Weekly HQ. Novak Djokovic and Coco Goff are your US Open singles champions. We are back as a three to talk about all the action and uh, we've got to start actually with the fact that I was at a wedding at the weekend and the parking, the parking was on a tennis court. It felt like uh, it was like a... The whole world of tennis had been violated. Sounds very posh. What sort of court was it, Joel? It was a grass. It was a grass no. court. No, oh. <laughs> that's going to leave what a mark. The, what would the Wimbledon grounds crew think of I that? Know, that right? <laughs> I did take a photo, Sacrilege. but I actually didn't want to share it on tennis Twitter because, yeah, I did feel like it had sort of, it sort of had violated. Someone's yes, going to get fired. You thought maybe you'd with that power <laughs> we have on Twitter. Well, uh, all I will say is the the ground was quite firm, so it wasn't like cars were sinking in and making tire tread pat patterns into the grass but nonetheless i was a little bit sad inside goodness i hope no one tried booking the court they'd be very disappointed if they were trying to play <laughs> yeah it's like the cars that are often you know sponsorship cars at the side of the court like the porsche open it's just, just but they're like just popped on the court inside instead yeah, yeah. you've already won um <laughs> joel um we have had like quite a lot of dry weather. So yeah, it wasn't a bog for the cars trying to park, but I think it's going to rain quite soon. But I see you've you've actually moved house recently and I know you used to get very hot and sweaty during the podcast. Um, is your new circumstances slightly better for 
recording, or are you, are you still sweltering there? It's actually you're if looking anything, quite hot and bothered. Yeah, if anything, it's it's probably a bit worse. Uh, I've had oh, to, no. you know, Cosy lives and all that. I've had to, you know, I've had to downsize, and uh, yeah. Although I've got the fan, I was a little bit nervous that that would sort of ruin, uh, yeah, my like recording background ambiance. So uh, yeah, ambience. I'm here. I'm here. I'm just gonna get redder and redder. I feel as the recording goes on. Excitement. It is cooler in Manchester, though, I will say. <laughs> yes. So at least you have six days mm. in cool temperatures Ooh, recording. Love it. And I know you've picked the Airbnb, so I'm, I'm, I'm expecting there to be aircon. A good amount of airflow. Yes, indeed. Mm. That's one of the prerequisites when you have to book for Joel. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. If, if it was up to me, we'd just be in the local travel lodge. Yes, that's why it's <laughs> with not. Your blue WKDs <laughs> yeah. with you. The travel, uh, though, let's be honest. <laughs> Good job with not partnering with them at the moment. Um, anyway, let's get on to the tennis. What we're all here for, because uh, we are here, obviously, to catch up on all the final action from the US Open. Uh, we've just had the weekend and the two singles finals and a whole host of other finals, which we are still yet to round up, including the ladies doubles and all the wheelchair events. Um, I have to say I had quite a late night last night uh, watching the end of the uh, men's final between Novak Djokovic and Daniel Medvedev. I reckon a lot of people went to bed after that second set though because I mean, in the I UK was I was exhausted after that second admit, set. I did. It, I'm an hour later here so I have to admit didn't see much of that third set. Yeah I feel like the European TV audience like drastically went down. Just, yes. Yeah, once Djokovic uh, won that tie break, you know, he got a two sets to love lead. And I think it seemed somewhat unlikely uh, at that point that Daniel Medvedev would win three straight sets to come back. Unless your name is Jürgen Meltzer. Jürgen Meltzer being the only person I think to have beaten Djokovic from, from two, two sets, sets down, down at a Grand Slam. Yes, Grand Slam. yes. Goodness. That statistic just gets wheeled out, I think, every time uh, Novak Djokovic goes two sets to love up. But it did feel it did feel a little bit like a foregone conclusion, didn't it, once uh, that second set had been, let's be honest, stolen by Djokovic from Medvedev, who he would have been ruining his missed opportunities, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that second set, one hour and 44 minutes just for a set. Uh, ridiculous. Is that the longest set of all time? I didn't see any stats on that. Yeah, but I, do I think was that's surprised than, I hadn't yeah. though. It must be one of the longest. It must also be longer than Taylor Fritz spent on court for any of his first four <laughs> matches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, during that second set, I you know, we saw Djokovic looking a bit... Um, like tired and starting to kind of grimace a bit mm. and it did seem you know like if it was going to go once at all we did think you know is Djokovic going to have the stamina to actually you know if this goes a long five set match if each set is lasting you know an hour and a half plus is Djokovic going to have um, what it takes to go the distance but obviously he knew that he needed to get that second set and once he'd got that he only had to hang on for a, a bit longer to get the third and win and I think that was therefore it was just a crucial second set really to decide decide the outcome I think it, it did rest on on that second set I think that was plain to see but I think Daniel Medvedev will be disappointed because it did feel like Djokovic was almost like a wounded animal in that second set for me there was almost these similarities I think with that final in in Cincinnati against Alcaraz where again I just thought he was like fatiguing he didn't look physically 100% um, and then he just sort of pulled it out the bag. And I think there was a similar kind of narrative here in terms of the fact that, you know, after that kind of, uh, you know, first set and a half, I thought we were just kind of going on a stroll with Djokovic to a three set victory. But Daniel Medvedev really brought it back and really, 
fought, particularly in the second half of that second set. And I think he'll be very disappointed with how he didn't go on to win that because I can't feel like I'm the only one, but I genuinely sense that if Medvedev had won that second set, the momentum shift would have been would have been huge and you would have I would have put Medvedev going into the third probably as the favourite for the match well I mean that's quite bold favourite for the match given some of the situations we've seen Djokovic get himself out of but he did say himself in his post-match press conference Djokovic that he didn't think he played the best tennis in that set or that he deserved it he thought that Medvedev really did and we've seen that so many times before that you know the great great champions are able to find a way to edge it to win and when it came to the tie break he was able to really make the difference there and if you look at some of the stats from that set uh, he actually did have um, more break points he had two break points there were no breaks in that entire set and Djokovic only had one break point but you really felt if he had broken I think it would have been for 4-2 that we wouldn't have kind of uh, spent so much energy as well though on that um, second set so maybe it would have been not necessarily like a a foregone conclusion either way um, because it would have been a bit shorter but that first set I was surprised. I don't know what you guys think in terms of the way that Medvedev started. It wasn't the Medvedev that I thought would start a Grand Slam final. He was a bit a bit off, a few too many unforced errors in that first set. Yeah, lots of double faults as well. And it just, you can't afford to bring that to a Grand Slam final playing Novak Djokovic. Mm. You're asking for trouble. <laughs> he felt very subdued, I, I felt. You know, this was this was a big occasion. I mean, the, the I swear the TV cameras were obsessed with showing us every single celebrity um, that was in the crowd. But given the sense of occasion there, it didn't really feel to me like that first set or even the first, as I say, kind of set and a half really kind of lived up to the billing. Maybe I'm a little bit, you know, comparing it to, you know, what we had, which was an all-time classic, Alcaraz versus Djokovic at Wimbledon. But to me, I was very surprised with how Medvedev just looked very subdued on the court and took too long, I think, to to really get going. That first game or first couple of games, I think when um, Djokovic went three love up, he crunched that forehand down the line mm. And I just think maybe he was a bit shell-shocked by the level that Djokovic brought so early. I think we haven't always seen Djokovic. And the last time they played, he didn't bring that level in a Grand Slam final. So, I mean, to be honest, when I saw the start of that, I did think three sets. I didn't think there would be that sort of potential wobble in the second set because the ball striking was quite something in his court positioning. He was really taking it to Medvedev. So maybe it was the fact that Djokovic was playing a bit of a different game than he was expecting and the ball was coming at him a lot quicker than he thought. Yeah, I do think halfway through that second set, it did kind of come to life because up to that point, it was disappointing me as a fan. You know, <laughs> I had messaged it. both of you saying, I think this is one of the most disappointing like men's finals in, in recent memory, given how... Arab, surely not. <laughs> <laughs> it felt so serene and so sedate. And I was like, there were like 20,000 people in this in this crowd. And it was all very hush and silent. And all celebrities, Joel. None of them had watched a tennis match before. <laughs> <laughs> it just know who was winning. Felt, I mean, the atmosphere just felt very low-key, I think, for for a final with, with what was at stake. Number 24. Yeah, yeah, that was surprising, mm. right? Because... At Wimbledon, it was the talk of the tournament, you know, and and the French Open, even tying um, the record was such a big deal um, at the time. So I've I've been tying the record in terms of Serena at the time. And then obviously Nadal is on a different number. So that's not quite correct. But that was a big deal, you know, going clear in that sense. And it was odd that this wasn't the biggest occasion in that sense. Do you feel like from a fan point of view, do you think there was like a sense of a letdown that we didn't get... Alcaraz versus Djokovic in the final because you know on our preview 
we all thought we all thought that was going to be the final. I can't doubt that there are many other fans around the world who would have thought that was going to be the final as well. And because we got Medvedev, Djokovic, something different, do you feel like there was a sense of like, oh, this is like the plan B? We wanted the, you know, we wanted plan A. Yeah, I think there's a sense of deflation. And I think also maybe it was a bit of a letdown from Coco the night before because obviously that for America and home fans, True. that was such a massive deal. Whereas they're probably not just not generally as bothered by either Djokovic or Medvedev. It's just not such a spectacle for you know all those celebrities and unless like you're Matthew man. McConaughey because he was in the he was in the yes. Novak Djokovic box, wasn't he? He he was. And I didn't know that they were such good friends they're definitely uh-huh. very pally i mean even when he celebrated him and um djokovic and matthew mcconaughey's wife were on very close terms as well but this is the controversial element there and this is something i'll put to both of you um djokovic uh said that in charge of the seating in the box there were a lot of people to fit in the box was his wife um and that she actually had um relegated the kids to courtside and Matthew McConaughey and his wife were in the box. And so I think... Priorities was, was there. That, priorities. Yeah, exactly, priorities. Or was it tactical genius that the kids were courtside? And Djokovic said he kept looking over because they were almost directly opposite him when he was sitting at change of ends, reminding him to kind of stay positive and to put a smile on his face. So was that genius? Or would you put Matthew McConaughey courtside and the kids in the box? Maybe she's earmarking an invite to the Oscars next year or, or something. Probably they uh, can get you to better <laughs> parties than your kids can. Yeah, maybe that's why Yelena was in that sort of business. Uh, she was networking. I don't know, dress. She yeah, was, yeah, was she was. She was doing it as a business, as a, uh, you know, occasion. Djokovic taking care of business on the court. Yelena in the crowd taking business off the court. Yeah, I can see that. I did love the difference between like Yelena's outfit and uh, Medvedev's wife, who was just like very relaxed in her like trackies, <laughs> and I just thought. You know, I, I I knew which outfit I would feel more comfortable in and what I would have wanted. Like if I was watching my husband play a stressful tennis match, I would just want to feel like comfortable and relaxed. But on your I quite like the contrast. On your anniversary, though, that was the anniversary Dan, uh, Daniel said after the match, didn't he? It oh, was, shame he didn't win then. That's why he wanted what, to do it again after, that would have yeah, been. after 2021. Oh. It was the present. It was the same day. So maybe she was hoping he'd get the win and then they'd go out and celebrate. Um, well, I feel like if he if he wanted to do that, then he needed, I think, to address the fact that, I mean, Novak Djokovic tactically in this match, it was quite clear serve and volley was working very, very well for him. And Daniel Medvedev, just it just felt like he did not learn. It's not like this is the first time we've ever seen Novak Djokovic serve and volley, but the fact that, that Medvedev, was his return position on serve was just so far back. It was a real open invitation for Novak to come forward and... It really, I think, did the damage throughout the match. And I don't necessarily feel like we sensed Novak Djokovic as a as a servant volleyer. But in this match, when maybe he felt like his fitness levels weren't at 100% and he needed to keep the rally short, particularly against someone who's got the, you know, the octopus-like defensive capabilities of a Medvedev, that that was, that was the go-to play. Yeah, I, I think it. I think it was. I think it makes sense when he's so far back and he's not really showing many signs of looking to move up the court himself. Um, I think you have to kind of question again. You know, not being able to change up the tactics. That's something where he mentioned that in the Alcaraz match that everyone said that you won't beat Alcaraz playing from that far behind the baseline, and he did. He's obviously played that far behind. And he's beaten Djokovic before when he was going for the Grand Slam. So. I think it was tactically a sensible um, thing for Djokovic and not something that's too surprising. 
Uh, like we've seen him do that against um, Nadal on clay previously to great effect. And that is a way you can get past someone who is retrieving very well. But the thing about that, you've got to do what Coco did in that third set against Sabalenka. You've got to lock down the unforced errors. And Medvedev was making just a few too many. Um, and I think that's kind of the big the big point there is if you are playing that far behind, you have to be the wall that he was in the semifinal. And I don't think it quite clicked for him today. And I think that Djokovic was able to take advantage of the net. Yeah, what works for, you know, against other players just is unlikely to perhaps work against, you know, the greatest of all time. I mean, what's next for for Novak Djokovic? Because he's now achieved, you know, this amazing tally of 24 Grand Slams, um, which is just, you know, ridiculous. Uh, Lacoste got, had obviously got all the, the T-shirts ready for him and his team, which they, they promptly unveiled. Um, I always think that's a bit cringe when they have all the clothing ready, but I understand in this commercial world we live in, it's par for the course. Fine, Kim, I won't get the <laughs> Tennis Weekly embroidered 400 uh, T-shirts when we hit our 400th episode. <laughs> well, It'll I mean, just yeah. be for me and Chris. Well, don't get it done just yet. What if we don't make it to 400? <laughs> well, exactly. It's preempting. <laughs> oh, okay, it? I'm to get okay do it on the <laughs> night <laughs> okay <laughs> um he's also leveled with that you know margaret court's record of, of 24 um grand slam singles titles as well um what i also think is very impressive this is the third time he's won three of the four grand slam uh you know grand slam titles in one year um he's the first person to have done that uh sorry it's the fourth time he's done that so you know the records keep falling how how many do you think he is aiming for now? I think 25 is obviously, you know, the next one. It's a nice sort of kind of rounded number, if you like. But do you think he's got a particular target? Or do you think, you know, what is the, the one thing he is going to be gunning for now that he's he's kind of got the all-time record for, for the men's anyway? It's got to be the Grand Slam, hasn't it? I think in mm. press, I actually really warmed to his answer where he was asked about, um, his season this year and what his goals will be for next season. And he said this year he wanted to win all four. And I think it's because he has such high expectations for himself. And so he said, you could look back at that woman in final and have a little bit, you know, of regret or feel a bit like you could have done something a bit differently. But he said, if someone said to him at the start of the season, you can sign here and you'll win three majors and have a final, he would take it. So I think it, that's quite um, a healthy attitude to have. You know, you want to do it all. And if you don't, you still want to do as best as you can at everything. And looking at next year, why would the goal not be to win four? Why would the goal not be, you know, 25, 26, 27, 28 next year, which is, you know, truly scary that there's no talk of retirement, obviously, because he's at the top of his top of his game, playing some of the best tennis of his career. So it's a very odd one because normally you just have this conversation, you know, when it comes to the potential much earlier in someone's career, not when they're 36, thinking, hang on a minute, if he's won this many since 2018, that was only five years ago. Where will he be, you know, in five years now? It's 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 mad. It's it's interesting you say that because is that a commentary on the state of the the ATP tour at the moment? Because it just feels like we've got maybe maybe this this three that is Djokovic, Alcaraz, and Medvedev, and you can really only think that at the moment anyway that Medvedev or Alcaraz could topple you know Novak Djokovic in a, in a best of five, you know, in a Grand Slam format versus. The WTA side of things where, you know, we've got Coco Goff winning her first ever title. It feels like it's a lot more anyone could be anyone in that sort of top, potentially in that kind of top eight. And as a result of that, it, it just doesn't feel like Novak Djokovic has that many competitors, really, I think, going into you know next season. Yes, obviously, we hope to see Rafa back as well. But 
the fact that I think there's just so few rivals, genuine rivals around him means that I I also can't see why not of reaching a, a you know a calendar slam because you know he's going to be motivated I think by how close he has come. I mean, he could have so many more, couldn't he? Yeah, I find it always amazing when it's like twenty four and counting, and that and counting to me is just a testament to his his longevity on the tour. I don't think. Goran Ivanisevic, you know, has said that Novak is planning to play the Olympics in 2028 in Los Angeles. Quick maths. I couldn't tell if that's joking or not. No, he's not joking. That's not even like the next Olympics. That's Paris next year. Like that's obviously he's never won the the gold medal in in the singles. So that would be, I assume, also a goal for Djokovic to tick off. Golden slam next year. That's going to be the golden, isn't it? Yeah, it's just scary that he's planning on playing for another five years. Um, could be on 50 slams. <laughs> no, that's probably impossible. Mathematically, but, um... Kim, I'd say that's inaccurate, <laughs> but he could be on a lot well... more. <laughs> um, and then just a, a word on Daniel Medvedev. Obviously, he'll be disappointed um, to have lost another final to Djokovic. And I know he's he's won one, but he's lost more than he has won. What do you think is the one thing he will take from this that he will look to implement, you know, should this situation arise, you know, yet again. I think he needs to play more front foot tennis, you know, against players like Djokovic or or understand that he's just not going to be able to win a Grand Slam, I think, just playing from the back of the court, six feet behind the baseline. I think Djokovic showed that last night. And I think maybe he needs a bit more variety tactically because it doesn't feel like he even approached any or entertained any idea of of changing it up I almost feel like he sort of hoped for for Novak Djokovic to to you know take a break or, or slip up or you know maybe after that second set he thought okay Djokovic can have a breather here because he's he's two sets up but it just felt like he didn't really have a plan b in his locker to go to against Novak Djokovic and I think that's what he's going to need if if he comes up against him in another final down the line well, someone's going to knock out Djokovic. You know, if you're looking for a Grand Slam, someone has to beat Djokovic and you have to really think about what it is about your game. I think with Alcaraz, Alcaraz is still a young player who sometimes will miss, sometimes will, you know, um, not have the patience that maybe someone like Djokovic has had. And you have to think with Medvedev that he he has put himself, you know, in in uh, in, in the mix for slams, you know, going into the top, top three, cementing his status, this year is kind of the best of the rest between um, those who have won slams this year and those who haven't. There's a big jump to Holger Runa at number four, really, in terms of performances this year. So um, he's put himself in a good position to make it to the business end of slams, you know, Cedar for a semi-final, probably at every slam next year, given the results um, this year and where they've landed. So I'd I'd love to see him in these later stages because that semi-final was fantastic. And I think this had potential to be great. Um, I think obviously it's just a very tall order, you know, playing against Novak Djokovic, playing that well and that calmly. I think that's the big difference is in the final he played in previously, it was an out of sorts Novak Djokovic. Um, Novak Djokovic has said previously that he was taking nothing away from obviously Medvedev, but he was in his head very much about the numbers, about the history, about the Grand Slam. Um, whereas this time he kind of tried to not think about any of that. And maybe that's partly why there hasn't been so much hype. There's not been so many Novak Djokovic stories in the media because he's kind of just shut all of that down and he's focused on this as the the milestone, but then moving on afterwards. So keep putting yourself in, in contention, I think must be his goal. And a lot more Masters 1000s, I think he'd be hoping to pick up as well next year. 
Djokovic has won exactly a third of every of all the Grand Slams that he's competed in, which is a very scary fact. And now that almost that pressure is definitely off now he's got to 24, it's scary that, you know, I don't see how he's going to have any sort of, um, you know, he's just going to be better, able to go it, for him? it. Yeah, the gonna stats are going to be ridiculous. One by the end of his career in Paris. <laughs> Gosh. Well, let's, um, you know, well done, Novak Djokovic. You have made history. Um, the, the numbers keep getting higher and higher um new world number one you know he's he's reclaimed his ranking so you know congratulations and we will see what he does for the rest of the season um let's have a look at some of the other results uh we had the ladies doubles final uh yesterday as well which i mean fantastic result because we had previous guest of the podcast gabby dabrowski and her partner erin routcliffe winning their first grand slam title together uh defeating siegmund and zvonareva in straight sets in the final uh joel and chris i know you've been avidly following uh <laughs> gabby throughout the I'm tournament i'm smiling i'm sm- <laughs> as soon as you say that result i'm smiling because this is a great yeah great result i say it- Gabby has been on has been on the show in the past and you know she's won she's been in this position in in mixed doubles but to do it in the ladies doubles is is fantastic and to think she's been on the tour I almost feel like she's been like plugging away season after season and this season I think she's had to overcome real adversity at times it's been a, a turbulent season it's not always been consistent but going into the you know the North American hardcore swing and the US Open this partnership has just it's almost to me like they've struck gold and uh although I, maybe they could you could argue that they had a little bit of luck on their way because uh, they were scheduled to face uh von drusova uh, and barbora stritzkova who, who did withdraw but they certainly i think made the most of it and uh it, yeah it's just fantastic to see them smiles on their faces and uh yeah they're becoming a, a you know a, a new force a new force in uh in ladies doubles tennis yeah, and they beat uh, Sue Wei Shea in you know the in mm. the uh, semi-finals, which she was on a sixteen-match win streak in the you know the Slam for the for doubles. So they beat some top names to get there. Uh, fantastic, you know, first ladies doubles Slam for for Gabby and also Erin. Uh, so ho- I assume they're going to stay together as as a partnership. You know, you'd be silly not to because it's obviously working well so far um so that's really fantastic for for gabby and erin um also fantastic for alfie hewitt of great britain in the wheelchair finals because he um has won the the us open men's wheelchair title beating gordon reed fellow brit uh, in straight sets fellow doubles in the final player. yeah they, they're they're the doubles team aren't they and they faced off in the singles final which is actually the first all british final i think at uh a Grand Slam event for, for the wheelchair event. So, um, yeah, they've never actually had that, <laughs> had to play each other in a Grand Slam final on the other side of the net, which is, uh, you know, it was the first time for everything. And of course, Hewitt and Reed uh, have historically done very well together in the doubles, but yeah, they didn't uh, make the final this time around in uh, Flushing Meadows. Um, we also had a junior wheelchair singles event, which Danon Ward uh, was the victor there. And uh, we also, Joel, I know you're a big fan of Dida De Groot uh, in the wheelchair women's event. She won the singles yet again. She's on an absolute roll. She's just the queen of, of the wheelchair event just winning titles left right and center i said this the other day or or as chris corrected me the novak Djokovic, right exactly but i think we're quite split because i quite liked um i don't know if any of our listeners saw this dida degree uh got her moment um on arthur ash during 
the US Open men's final. I quite liked it. They they you know let her come on and, and celebrate her trophy in front of a you know all the celebrities and in front of a packed crowd. But Chris, Chris and Kim, you you're a little bit like actually you weren't well, so sure. I felt like it was a bit of a token gesture in some ways because I think it's phenomenal. We in the know know what she's done is phenomenal. I thought they could have, and I'm not sure if they did. So someone correct me. If, if I'm wrong, maybe like play a bit of a highlight of something or put some of those stats up on the board because you're hearing those numbers and people must be thinking Novak Djokovic is already on the court, you know, when you think about how many slams that she's won. And it was kind of lost, I think, because when you've been to the US Open, everyone's talking and in the breaks, people are talking even more. They popped out. It was the end of a set. Everyone's gone. It was a long set. And you feel like that's not necessarily the perfect time to celebrate the moment that you could do a ceremony at another time or at the start before the match starts we'd like to celebrate mm. the wheelchair champions and I think that would be fant- a fantastic way to do it because that's when you're getting into the, the experience rather than have it as kind of a side act that doesn't really get the recognition it deserves yeah I think the, the timing of it they just put it put her on you know yeah like in the, at the end of the first bit, set yeah, like and during a changeover yeah, basically, I was like, give her her moment because most of the crowd were like off going to the loo. And, you know, she's won 12 straight Grand Slam wheelchair singles titles. I mean, that is just crazy. crazy. She's done three Grand Slams in a row, you know. Um, so I thought, like, have it before the match, have a pro- proper little ceremony. Yes, you know, I agree. Um, yeah. Give her her due. Um, but well, Joel clearly wasn't, didn't need the toilet at that moment. <laughs> no. <laughs> they should have made a, uh, a, a medical timeout. Uh, like Medvedev should have taken a medical timeout so that Dida de Groot could have had a, a longer... Well, Sabalenka did. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, and talking about breaks, uh, let's take a very quick break ourselves now. But do join us in the second half where we'll be looking back on all of the action from the ladies' singles final at Flushing Meadows. So do not go anywhere. Our US Open coverage is sponsored by AG1. AG1 is the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. If a comprehensive solution is what you need for your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash tennis weekly. That's drinkag1.com forward slash tennis weekly. Check it out. Welcome back to the Tennis Weekly podcast sponsored by AG1. And now we're going to move on to looking back at the ladies final from Saturday evening. Coco Goff against Arena Sabalenka. Uh, what a fairy tale story um, kind of happening here with Coco Goff winning her first Grand Slam title, coming from a set down to win in three, two, six, six, three, six, two. Um, she's had an incredible summer and She's had the perfect, uh, you know, end to to the US Open series. First Grand Slam title. Um, Chris, you must be ecstatic. You predicted this one slam too early, but now, you know, who's laughing now? I bet you bet you're chuffed. I'm so happy for her. I think she is such an incredible ambassador for the sport. I think she's so well liked and for such good reason. I think she holds herself and uh, behaves in such an exemplary manner. And I think everything that she has done kind of exudes class when it comes to 
the way that she has behaved in the wake of a lot of adversity at times. I mean, for someone so young, there's been a lot of people who've had something to say about her. And I think at times we also have, and whether that's been positive or negative always, um, I think it's amazing to hear how she handled that to come out with this triumph because uh, she said, and she talked about this, when we asked, when when does something change? Because we talked about this being Coco 2.0. And she said after that, that first final... Um, she really felt like the overwhelming feeling she would be feeling would be relief, not happiness. But a year later, when she was playing at the French Open and she didn't get the result that she wanted in the quarterfinals, and then she had the further disappointment of Wimbledon, she actually started just playing to enjoy it much more. The pressure was off. And she said relief is probably the smallest emotion she felt after this. It was just pure joy. And I think that was what was so great to see is that something's been lifted from her and she's she's done it. She's proved everybody that she was the talent they thought she was. Um, at the start and anyone who's doubted that you know she made a point to say that um, the haters out there she said to those who thought you were putting water on my fire you're really adding gas to it and now I'm really burning so bright right now so I thought it was incredible I think the nature of it was I mean so dramatic and the way that the whole summer's been dramatic I I mean it's a whirlwind and Joel we have to give you recognition Joel did put both winners down for uh, for not for collector sets, sorry, that was that was inaccurate. For predictions, you got both winners and uh, the finalists. Sl- the slam, slam spoon of shame is not is not coming my way. No, um, yeah, it was an incredible achievement from uh, you know Coco Goff, and yeah, this summer's just been. It's just been incredible, and uh, it's it's been fantastic to see. And I think you know for Sabalenka. She's got the silver lining that she's going to be the world number one on Monday. But I think what's so exciting to me is that I think if a few months ago we were talking about like a, a new big three for the women and we were talking about that being... Kajikova, no. Yeah, like Sviontek <laughs> and, and, and Sabalenka and, uh, you know, and, and Rabakina. And the fact that Coco Goff is now going to be in the top three from Monday, it just, I think, adds another name and adds another level of of depth I think particularly at that very top uh, and that quality at that very top of the WTA rankings that I just don't think exists at the moment um, on the ATP tour and it makes it very very exciting and uh, for Coco Goff at 19 years old it's an incredible achievement given you know she's been on the tour she's been on the tour for a while now five seasons yeah she burst on the scene you know uh, you know Wimbledon with that you know that victory over over Venus Williams Um, and uh it's she's still got so much time and you know Carlos Alcaraz you know was 19 years old when he won his you know first Grand Slam title you know US Open uh last year so yeah there are comparisons I think something I want to debate and it's kind of the inevitable comparisons that we have you know in terms of the nature of uh Emma Raducanu in her third tournament winning it and then Coco Goff has had a very different path he's been an absolute sort of staple on the tour she's won smaller titles first she's proved herself on the doubles court she's now the world number one in doubles as well um and it seems like this has been a story of building towards this um and i guess the question i put to you guys would be in terms of this story do you think this sets up coco for further success because she's already been in a final she's experienced life on tour she's experienced disappointment she's growing into kind of a much more well-rounded person much more able to deal with what's about to happen now for her where she was a pretty i mean she was a a big uh big ticket name before but now she's going to be a global superstar 
Yeah, she was already globally, you know, so well known. I think a lot of my, my friends who don't know tennis, they at least know Coco Goff, you know, along with the likes of, you know, Federer and Djokovic and Rafa and, you know, Serena. She's one of the names that because she broke through, you know, I remember her first Wimbledon, you know, just sort of captivated the the British audience just watching her get to the fourth round there. Her celebratory tweet, I think, from the Obamas has, has got like a half a million likes on uh, what is what was formerly known as Twitter, um, as everyone says now. But um, I guess the question is, is it going to, can it, is it going to amp up even more with a Grand Slam victory? You think the, the pressure or the celebrity around it? Because I think that's something that I think is interesting because if you're able to handle all of that she's had to go through so far, I think... And play doubles on top of it. Yeah, and, and she's she's really, I mean, nothing is harder than before you've hit the big time and you've achieved it. I think that's for every player. And that's why, you know, players say that once you do win a Grand Slam, it is something that can be quite freeing. And at times, um, you know, there might be more pressure coming to the Australian Open, but she still knows that she's won a slam. Um, mm. I do think, you know, that maybe people were going to cut her a break after this. You know, she's won it. She's, she's turned the match around. Um, but I was super shocked uh, on the coverage I was watching. I have to admit, as I am in Denmark, it was not Sky coverage. It was Eurosport still. Um, but the first thing that Mats Rolander said was that her forehand was terrible in the first set. And then he said that it wasn't a very good match and that she really needed to win that match because otherwise he wasn't sure what would happen for her. And I was like, hang on a minute. We've just heard her do her speech about all the haters everything she's been through and you can't just say she played a really great match to turn it around or something that would be you know she didn't start as well yeah and I think Mm. that's that thing where she says that she reads it all she sees it all and if you're able to turn that into a positive then whatever comes next I think she's definitely cracked the code to taking positive and negative things and turning them into something that motivates her to do something really impressive but a question I do have um Sabalenka in this match she was she was she really took the game to Coco in the start, really imposed her game on her. She wasn't making every shot she went for, but she was taking the time away from Coco. Was this a match that she could have won in two? And was the turning point uh, that second set when she was broken early and then Coco consolidated the break? Because it did look like we were maybe heading for a straight sets loss at one point in that match. Yeah, because if I remember rightly, Sabalenka had a break point early in the second set and I thought oh okay this could be quite a quick match actually Um, but we so often do see you know that momentum shift if if a break point is saved it can switch you know, swiftly go the other way. What disappointed me in Sabalenka was that when she did then get broken by Coco and she wasn't, you know, making some of her shots and Coco was defending really well, getting a lot back, Sabalenka just seemed to get very mentally uptight and kind of lose the plot. And, you know, she needed to, I think, just be a bit calmer and, and work it out because she was getting really frustrated and I just thought she she's losing this because she's just not not at the races and she's just you know very hit and miss and um I just thought you know Coco was coming out by far the more reliable dependent player and just getting everything back and I was I was I wasn't I thought Sabalenka you know she didn't make the best show of herself when things started to to kind of unravel for her yeah. um I think it was on her racket yeah to to to, to lose and <laughs> that's what she did I think she panicked I think she panicked yeah. when she yeah. started to miss more than she made um and it really opened the door for Coco Goff there because I think the the game plan had to be retrieval get everything back 
And mm. then when you have a chance, take the ball on because she moved so well. And I think some of the points where Sabalenka was kind of ushering the crowd to cheer her more, people were cheering Coco because she got two more balls. Everything. Back. Yeah, it was amazing. It, even if, you know, Coco didn't actually end up winning the point, she was still like fist pumping because she knew that she'd made Sabalenka yeah, you know, she pay was, like three she was extra still, shots. It was the highlight reel. And I think that was something yeah. that was so important. But then that third set on that exact point, when you look at the numbers, Coco, uh, got five winners, um, 11 winners for Sabalenka. She made just two unforced errors in that final set. Um, and I thought that was so impressive because there were 16 unforced errors from Sabalenka. So it really was a case where if you are Sabalenka, I think you will have, um, you know, you will be frustrated by that result. I think she she was frustrated. I think she did call a tactical, and I'm going to call it tactical because there were no signs of injury, um, at 4-1 yeah. in the third I think she just had run out of ideas and she thought all I can do is try and stop momentum and she did it before Coco serve which I know it's not against the rules but it is frowned upon um, and so I'm not saying that there's any cheating going on at all it's within the rules um, but it wasn't necessarily an injury that then presented itself or was talked about particularly afterwards and it did feel like a little bit out out of order it was like the last thing she the, could yeah, think of it oh, was. I, I need to try and hope that Coco and she gets, did break back you know, immediately. anxious. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But Coco kept her head, you know, remarkably well, um, considering all the, you know, all of the thrown at, you know, yeah. other players, it may well have, you know, that extra time to ponder and think about things. But, you know, Coco was just so mature and level-headed throughout. I do think the Sabalenka failed to execute her, her game plan. And I do think if, if she was able to bring... Uh, you know a level that she probably had demonstrated earlier in the tournament then yeah there's no, no doubt I think that she could have potentially won that in in straight sets but I think it just got to that point where Goff realized that or, or Sabalenka realized actually I can't I can't hit through Goff at the moment Goff is getting everything back and we know we know Sabalenka's footwork and her movement leaves a little bit to be desired if there are any areas of improvement and uh, you know with Goff making those extra shots pushing Sabalenka around the court I think it really did help cement that momentum shift and I thought it was fascinating to see I don't know if you both saw a little clip of Sabalenka in the uh in the changing rooms or in in the back room and her basically smashing a racket obliterating a racket on the floor and to me that frustration is just like I had an opportunity here and I let it slip. And although maybe she didn't get to those levels on the court in front of everyone, I thought it was very telling that once she was off the court, when she probably thought that there was no camera around and arguably I think there should have been no camera around, she just let it go. I've never seen that before. It was almost like something out of mm. a movie. I mean, maybe she did know that Breakpoint would be filming because she, it did, it felt a little bit, if mm. I'm being honest, it did feel a bit choreographed because she walked back really? in. Really? Really? She walked back, Joel, she walked back in with the dish, the runner-up trophy. She put it down. She got a racket out, and it was. It was. I don't know if I was gonna. If I was gonna do that, I think. It. Oh, I don't know. I think it's for break point. I've got to be honest. I did see it. Ooh, no, she didn't I, smash I a think she was just court. in that moment, just so annoyed that you know she didn't she enter that room by herself. Surely not. That feels weird to me after that sort of result. But I can't wait for season two to see if it's in there. Well, actually, I mean, we'll see. Maybe it probably was. Um, genuine but I do think that when you are being filmed maybe you are aware that this would be a great moment to film I mean just on that because there are a lot of people saying that they actually don't like seeing cameras in the back room in that area and actually it should maybe be off limits are, are you 
where do you stand on kind of uh, you know v- v- player visibility and should we only be seeing them as they emerge from you know the the tunnel entrance for yeah, example it's like watching cctv it's a bit weird isn't it um yeah the camera was like <laughs> camera just like followed her you know yeah, showed this racket yeah. and then it showed her like like dropping the racket in the something. bin. Big yeah. Brother, but TV. I remember they did market the US Open as the best US Open series as the best reality TV show on earth like 10 years ago. Um, and so maybe they've kind of taken that one step further and added an element of Big Brother to it. But yeah, I'm not sure about it. I think you get some nice moments, but I don't need to see. I mean, I like seeing when, you know, um, Elena Svitolina and Gail Monfils when they walk past and they give each other a little hug or something because their match is finished at certain times or Kaini Shakuri and fist pumping Naomi Osaka but I don't need to see Casper Ruud kind of warm down on the, no. on the bike after his match <laughs> and I think maybe some that people is... might <laughs> no, I think some people really like that <laughs> I mean maybe that is a result of Breakpoint and this access all areas feel and I get it that there are moments where behind the scenes you want to you want to let fans in on that but I also think there are moments like this Sabalenka moment which to me looked very personal a very private moment a moment she probably didn't want to show on the court that's why she did it out back that I'm not sure a camera should have been there and I'm not sure it should have been you know shown on being shown on on social media I don't think I don't think we needed to see that I think people are aware probably where cameras are though if, if I'm really honest because she almost put it directly into the middle of the shot but that's my theory that's Joel's theory but you can also have great moments that aren't in uh, behind the scenes as well and I think that's something where Coco Goff really shone because in the ceremony and everything that happened she made it so uniquely her own I thought it was kind of wonderful the way that when she did win she then tried to FaceTime her brother who actually didn't pick up and then eventually he did pick up and then the best part was that um, she was speaking to him and she thought, oh, that, you know, the people in the suits are going to talk for a bit so I can speak to him for a bit and then I'll join the ceremony. And then she got told, no, you've got to go up, stand up and listen to them. Um, so that was quite refreshing. And then the moment that I loved, I wonder if you guys saw this, where um, uh, she got handed the $3 million check. Mm. And then uh, Billie Jean King was there because obviously this is the 50 years of equal prize money for the US Open. Um, and so they really did kind of make a shout out to that in that moment. And then Coco thanks Billy for like, thanks Billy for everything you did whilst holding her like three million pound check. So <laughs> slightly different from Billie Jean King played, but it did make kind of, it did make the point. I also liked the uh, call me Coco uh, or Co- call me champion yeah. shirts that all her team obviously you know, got out when uh, when she won, and it got me thinking. Like, what other slogans could you have? Uh, maybe in- instead of that, because you know, I feel like she's got quite a good name for like some fun, like puns around uh, well, Coco. Kim, it's got to be "Wake me up before you Coco." That would be good. <laughs> that would be very good. Wham. Yes. Thanks, Joel. Yeah. Singing on the podcast. I, I had uh, rehearsed that. I had rehearsed that oh, in the build up today, all day, all day we today. We could do a. Uh, we got it done, something like that, or like we got the win. <laughs> I'm not sure if that quite works. I mean, got what with the wind? What, no. what do you think's next for for Coco Goff? Do you think is it is it merch. the world number one? It is. She's selling that t-shirt on New Balance. Oh, well, merch. Yeah, yeah. No, she yeah, hasn't yeah. got enough money. Well, and... She's going to be a big earner, that's for sure. <laughs> do you think? But do you think? You know? Do you think the world number one is is now in her sights now that she is is top three, or do you think she'll be kind of thinking about? grand slam titles and getting more of them now she's got that first taste as opposed to the ranking well i personally i just think uh 
the the way that she's approached the summer and the way that she's approached matches is as we talked about enjoying the tennis and these things will come I think she will have those goals and if you do win a slam the goal is to win another slam for it not to be the only slam that you win obviously I think going into the rest of the season I think she'll want to make sure that she finishes as high in the rankings as possible Sabalenka said that's her main motivation now because obviously she did want to win the US Open but now she wants to finish the year end number one and so I think that's something that is uh, kind of very interesting to see that there is a race for the number one going on now because um, it hasn't always been a race on the WTA. So the number one ranking will be important, um, but, you know, keep winning. Take it day by day and uh, celebrate this moment because, you know, I think it's been a long time coming for her. Yeah, and um, just a note on Sabalenka, you know, she has had a fantastic season at the Slams. You know, she's made two semis, one final and got a win as well. So she's, you know, rightly so, the new world number one based on all her very consistent top level performances this season. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how where she goes from here as well. Um, let's round up some of the other results because, uh, you know, you we were talking about Coco Goff, she's she is already world number one in doubles. Singles may well come, you know, in the next few months, perhaps. But she is already world number one in doubles. Perhaps we'll have a an Ash Barty situation again, where she she might hold the two together. Um, Jessica Pagula is also doubles number one. They they have a joint uh, number one ranking. But uh, Pagula, she was in the mixed doubles final with her partner Austin Krychek, who is the men's. Uh, doubles number one a lot of number ones going on here uh, but they lost actually to Danilina and Heliovara so they were not able to bring home a mixed title for the home fans uh, we had Danilina of Kazakhstan and Heliovara of Finland um, taking never home played. they'd never played before I don't think they just their was first title scratch yeah. pairing and uh, yeah I think well Pagula and, and Krychek they'll be disappointed I think in front of their their home fans and uh yeah they obviously would have wanted to get the title but um yeah and congratulations to dan alina and helio vara because it's i always think it's just not easy it's just not easy defeating home favorites at, at the u.s open and upsetting um, the party yeah exactly so uh yeah great result but for them gula did make the joke at the start of the tournament that she wasn't worried about playing all three events because her and Austin hadn't actually managed to get past the first round in like two no. years or something <laughs> on the mixed doubles. So I think they'll probably be quite pleased with the final. And interestingly, you know, we have talked a lot about um, Pagoda's scheduling. She has pulled out of Guadalajara, which she would be defending. So I think she's probably mm. taking a moment after the craziness of the US Open to reset before potentially the end of season filings, maybe. Is that an admission that she she plays too much tennis? Like, as we've kind of been saying here, three three events, ladies singles, ladies doubles, mixed doubles. Is there an admission almost to to that idea? Maybe her visa only lets her go to Mexico once this year, not, not <laughs> twice, because obviously she's going to be country hopping. Maybe she is mm. prioritising some other tournaments in the season and she's going to be very busy playing the end of season finals as well as the Billie Jean King Cup final. So I think probably players will be looking at their schedule now as to whether, you know, they make the trip over to Asia first or do they uh, play some of the smaller tournaments um, in other places. So Pagula is likely to be playing both the end of season finals for the singles and the doubles along with, mm. with Coco Goff, which and, is, yeah. and then the it's Billie Jean King Cup easy. final. So yeah, yeah maybe not, there's a lot of tennis there. Maybe it is time for a bit of time off. Still a lot of tennis to come. And uh, you guys, no rest for you either of you because you are both travelling up to Manchester tomorrow for the Davis up Cup to, finals. Because it is stage. up for me. Was it more horizontal from Copenhagen? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. I have to get my atlas it, out, yes, Chris. Maybe. 
I'm sorry I can't be there um, to join you, but you know you'll be producing uh, some episodes from your journey. Don't worry, you'll you'll be missing out on me just gloating one final time. I think in person about the Coco Golf prediction to Chris. But uh... first day, he can get it out of the way. He gets a free pass <laughs> if it brings it up one more time. Yeah, then, then we we're... can focus on getting Jack Draper hopefully for an interview. No, um, exactly. Yeah, but it's uh, I think it's really exciting. I saw a photo earlier of the GB squad, and there's a part of me that's almost like we've got the past, the present and the future of, of GB tennis wow, in one squad goodness. right now. That's so poetic. I know. We've, you know. we're with Andy Murray, Dan Evans, Cam Norrie, and then the future in Jack Draper. So is he the, grand, the grandfather type that you put on Murray yeah. there? That's, I would Mate, say- but he's trying to go against that because he's clean shaven and it doesn't, again, it just doesn't younger. look right. It's, a, it's a bit, a bit freaky, hasn't it? I it saw doesn't look it, it right. did and I thought, I wow, who's, who's reposting like old <laughs> pictures from Davis Cup galas? But I did see a picture of all of the, all the team. And I have to say, we had two of them wearing, um, two were wearing trainers. We had two three wearing brown shoes with a black suit and just jack draper mr um and mr making, fourth round us open yeah 2023. i mean he's in the black shoes the black suit <laughs> and you know very uh james bonder so i think that maybe he's dressing to impress but other other teams hoping to impress um so uh the swiss are there we have um stan rorinka will be there the french team are there and um, the battle for the french number one we can see Manorino. live Manorino Kim will be there uh, Arthur Fee also will be there. Uh, Australia will be there. Diminar will be playing um, and Max Purcell. So we've got a very tough group and there will be lots of people who will be um, hopefully interested in hearing about how that goes. Um, yes. And if you have a question, do let us know and we'll put it to any player of your choice. No, we'll try. Yes, <laughs> we will. We will try. But yes, listeners, we will be producing live episodes um, of our travels of Joel and Chris's travels to Manchester for the Davis Cup finals group stage. So and we'll yeah, talk about the tennis, not just that. travels, Joel. You know, yeah. Not, sorry, we, we, we will look at it. It's not just going to be like us. Not going... Michael Portillo on a yeah, train. Yeah, it is. It's Michael. Well, who's Michael I do Portillo. hope some Hugo's will be involved though. Um, at some point, hopefully, in honor of for Kim. a GB. Yeah, in honour of Kim and hopefully maybe for a GB, GB victory. But um, yeah, just look out for that. Um, I know we're all almost like tired, I feel, from, from US Open. Not tired at not all. Not for us. No. We are, we're full of beans and we're looking raring to go full for of AG1. GB. Full of AG1, yes, exactly, for uh, GB in Manchester. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. I'm sure all our listeners will be as well. So that brings to a close, I guess, our US Open coverage. Joel, well done on your predictions. Uh, clean sweep for Coco Goff and Novak Djokovic as your champion. So can I just go right? If I didn't get the slam spoon of shame, who did? Who was Chris it? Chris did. I don't think this is up for debate. I mean, very I, much, Chris. I, I got zero in collector set. You both got two. Um, and then when it came to predictions, I had Carlos Alcaraz winning. You both had Djokovic, and I, I didn't, I didn't nail it in, in any department, unfortunately. Wow. So. I said Sabalenka would win. That didn't happen. Um, I will keep the spoon is what we talked about in the last podcast that I, I had it from Wimbledon with Coco Goff. And now okay. you don't have it because of yes. Coco Goff. So come full circle. <laughs> Thanks, Coco. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, sli- I'm slightly I'm slightly relieved. But uh, yeah, Chris with the slam spoon of shame. And listeners, thank you so much for being part of our US Open journey over the last couple of weeks. Anyone who has supported the show by listening to us or following us, uh, engaging with us on, on social saying media. Saying hi in New York. Saying hi in New York. I forgot. Oh my God, it feels so long ago, yeah. Chris. You're actually there in New York City. Um, Leave a dream. Yes. 
just a big thank you from Tennis Weekly HQ to all of our listeners who supported the show over the season. But we are going to wrap it there for our US Open round by round coverage. Listeners, I hope you have enjoyed all of our US Open coverage over the last fortnight with the Tennis Weekly podcast. Remember to subscribe to us to stay up to date on all the action still to come from the ATP and WTA tours. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all major podcasting platforms out there. And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also follow us on social media or email the show. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube and X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at Tennis Weekly Pod. And you can also purchase exclusive Tennis Weekly merch at etsy.com slash shop slash Tennis Weekly Podcast. Or if you prefer, do email the show on tennisweeklypod at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, tennisweekly.co.uk. And we will be back later in the week with Davis Cup podcast from Manchester. So I hope you can join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Kim. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon.